0: The continent of Africa is home to me. The Horn of Africa is where I was born and raised. In this episode, you will receive a snapshot of current affairs in the Horn of Africa and the extent of foreign countries' involvement in this region, and especially the United States. Halgun Media provides in-depth coverage of the Somali Peninsula and the Horn of Africa while documenting war crimes against Somalis. I had the opportunity to sit down for a discussion with the founder of Hagen Media and a freelance journalist, Mohamed. This episode is dedicated to the innocent souls of young Somali men lost
1: in South Africa.
0: How did you get started with Helga Media as a founder? And let's talk a little bit about
1: your background in media. Uh, thank you. Uh, well- in regards to Hugging Media, I just uh, I started it in, uh, I believe, late 2017, but I didn't start publishing until early 2018. My reason behind it was I really wanted to focus on like, human rights abuses affecting Somalis in the horn because uh, it doesn't really get the coverage that it needs. you know. So that was one of the main purposes behind Hugging Media. It was started with writing articles advanced over the past couple of years to actually doing documentaries on a YouTube platform that I have. That's what I would say. And uh, my background, I would say I'm mainly a freelance journalist, and I've done reports with other mainstream outlets such as TRT, Byline Times in the UK, and just to name a few.
0: Why do you think there not is in-depth coverage of the Horn of Africa and especially
1: the issue that goes on in Africa? I think there's uh, the in regards to covering issues in the Horn of Africa I feel like from a Somali perspective I believe it's a controlled narrative you know what I mean because when you go on social media or even the mainstream or watch the mainstream outlets they talk about perspectives I've noticed a lot from a Tigray perspective or an Oromo perspective or Mahara perspective rarely from a Somali perspective is it told despite Somalis inhabiting what like four I mean territory in four separate countries you know what I mean and they do face the brunt of abuses and atrocities that have been taken place in the region particularly the past 30 years and the reason why it's not covered i would say is because a lot of these abuses are being either directly carried out or enabled by some of these uh, i would say western powers you know what i mean and that's why a lot of these western medias might not pick up on it like CNN is American owned, so we're not going to pick up on drone strikes in Somalia, you know, or uh, the British were funding the LiU police paramilitary force in the Ogaden region. So BBC News is obviously not going to cover abuses carried out by them in that region, you know. So I would say that's the reason why behind it.
0: So you quickly stepped into the um, something I'm very passionate about, and is, which is a critical issue, drone strikes and the drone wars in Africa. And, and mainly uh, the, the legacy of Obama and, and now Trump. Uh, what is AFRICOM, which was created in 2006 and overseen by the Obama administration?
1: Uh, AFRICOM is the, it's pretty much, they are the, Branch of the US military that oversees military operations in the African continent. Uh, I believe, uh, I think it was, a, I don't think, maybe, I think it was maybe actually 2007 or eight when they started. But what started as a small military operation on the African continent actually expanded over the past few years, particularly under Obama, as you stated, it just went berserk. And it got to a point where US military operations and their presence even on the African continent skyrocketed from opening a $100 million drone base in Niger to Engaging in counter-terror operations in places like the Central African Republic, Uganda, and so forth. But when you look in, gar- in regards to the Horn of Africa, I feel like Africa's presence, particularly I would say in a country like Somalia or the wider Horn, is the reason why it's heavily militarized today. Because if you've seen over the past few years, there's been an increased number of uh, drone strikes by the U.S. Uh, the U.S. are also involved in counter-terror operations in Somalia as well. And they also have a large military, uh, military presence and they work collectively collaborating with neighboring states like Ethiopia, Kenya, and have a huge military base in Djibouti. So, I mean, they might say their presence is to keep China or Russia at bay from the strategic region, but I would honestly say that it's uh, mainly linked to securing U.S. uh, resources and strategic interests in the region under the guise of fighting terrorism. The biggest special forces
0: activity happens in that region, uh, especially in the Saharian region of of Africa. What would you say is the legacy of Obama in Africa, because when he was elected, he was seen as the son of Africa, and there was a lot of hope in helping transform Africa, both economically, especially just the image of Africa on the world stage. So what would you say lasting legacy is in Africa?
1: I think Obama's legacy in Africa is, is man, honestly, I think it's deplorable and probably led to more suffering than that of Bush. Um, my reason behind that is because I mean, if you look at the Obama era throughout the African continent, he supported so many, like, you know, tyrannical regimes and proxy wars. Uh, it's gone to a point where he, I would say, he props up dictators in countries like Uganda. He, over, he takes part in overthrowing democratically elected leaders as witnessed in Egypt. And he supports militarization of countries like Somalia under the guise of fighting terrorism. So I would say Obama's legacy in Africa was just one of evil. Uh, that's just my opinion. Sure, he was viewed by many people as being the son of Africa because his father is of Kenyan descent. But at the end of the day, I felt like he kept the establishment and the empire's, uh, what's it called, game plan going when it came to Africa, exploit, uh, contain, and loot. So that's how I look at it, honestly.
0: 16% of the, the oil comes from uh, Africa uh, that the US utilizes uh, as well as many other resources. It's just very unfortunate that it went down that route Recently, there's been a clash of violence. Um, there's been a lot going on in Somalia. Briefly, if you can go into explaining what's going on in Somalia from your perspective.
1: Yeah, re- uh, as of right now, there's a, a, a electoral problem in the country going going on at the moment regarding the elections. And uh, a lot of people look at it as like an election crisis between the government and opposition. But I honestly view it through a different perspective i say it's a manufactured crisis and my reason behind that is because all of this could have been avoided that's in my opinion how um, so? i'm sorry go ahead
0: no sorry how how so how
1: Oh, yeah, because, I mean, the current president, Fermatio, doesn't want to take part in elections, nor does he, he doesn't want elections to take place, nor does he actually want to step down from office, and the opposition is not having it. And what's actually happening is this Fermatio at the moment is being empowered by the international community or the Western diplomats, I would say particularly American officials at the U.S. Embassy in Mogadishu and the U.N. uh, envoy to Somalia. You have two individuals named James Swan, who is the U.N. envoy to Somalia and the U.S. ambassador to Somalia, named Donald Yamamoto. These are two American diplomats and they're empowering Firmaggio uh, to stay in power and to uh, even rig elections, in my opinion. Uh, the reason why is because, I mean, if you look at the abuses carried out by the current president, Firmaggio, attacking opposition, attacking civilians and doing all sorts of crimes that are against democracy and just outright human rights abuses, what they'll do is that they'll actually provide cover for him and then they, when, uh, they'll provide cover for him and they'll make excuses uses for him to stay in power and things of that nature. And the reason behind that is because there's a lot of vested interest in Somalia at the moment. Uh, The the current Somali president, uh, I believe it was late 2017 or early 2018, he lobbied Roger Stone. Uh, uh, with the, he lobbied Robert, Roger Stone to convince the Trump administration to increase more drone strikes in Somalia, the reason behind that because there's a lot of financial instability to gain from uh, drone strikes so that's his main reason behind that, and when you look at today. He's being empowered by the U.S. diplomatic because there's a lot of financial incentives behind him staying in power. He's signing a lot of oil deals, a lot of resources, things like that to American contractors and companies. This is why the U.S. is so adamant on keeping him in power, even if it risks plunging Somalia into another round of civil war. There was a lot that was said there, so I don't know how
0: to chop it up into pieces. Uh, but however, just to, to go in, President Formaggio, how did he help Somalia in the world to recovery?
1: It's, it's hard to say because uh, I wouldn't say that he's actually done anything really positive or beneficial in Somalia's four years. I mean, He came into Pappas, uh, office with uh, populist rhetoric and nationalism, but the guy did a complete U-turn once he entered office. I mean, he didn't build the armed forces. He didn't defeat the militants as he promised. There's a lot of things he didn't do, you know? I mean, the thing I would say that he probably did do that I, I do give hats off to is when during his tenure in office, what he did is there was a lot of young Somalis locked up in prisons in neighboring Ethiopia, India, and he played a role in releasing them. And even the ones locked up in Libya, I would say.
0: Liban is relieved to be back home in Somalia. Three years ago, he tried to migrate to Europe, but he never made it. Instead, he was kidnapped by smugglers in Libya
1: and sold as a slave. Like an animal, I was sold four times in open markets in Libya. The last time I was sold for $10,000, I was tortured every day.
0: Liban's story isn't unique. Amnesty International released a report recently describing how Somali refugees were being tortured in Libyan detention camps. It said they were held against their will by armed groups in exchange for money. Hundreds were reportedly sold for as little as $400. A far cry from the journey these migrants had hoped for.
1: For two years I was in a Libyan prison. I spent $15,000 and I still wasn't able to reach Europe. Now I'm just happy to be back in country and see my family.
0: The Somali government has been successful in returning small groups of refugees home. The
1: government of Somalia is committed to bring back its people who are in prisons around the globe. We've been able to repatriate some Somalis who were in Libyan prison. A month ago, we released migrants from Indian and Ethiopia prisons and brought them back to the country. We will continue to do so. I mean, that's what he did for the people, just you know, helping youth out that were incarcerated in different countries. But when you look at it from rebuilding the Somali state, strengthening institutions and providing services to the public, I would say he has done none of that and he's had four years.
0: How much is the U.S. In, currently involved in Somalia
1: in any affairs? Uh, I would say they're deeply affair, uh, deeply involved, excuse me, from military operations to politically as well with the large, current election crisis. And I would say they're also involved in aid and uh, support to the armed forces and the public. So the U.S. is very involved in Somalia, but not all of it is beneficial in my opinion.
0: Is it just the U.S. or is there also other foreign countries that are involved? And oh, i fighting is-
1: yeah, I think the whole world is involved. You have the UK, Norway, you have Gulf states. So the whole world is there. Everybody's there for their own vested interests. Some people just, some, some of these countries justify their presence under the guise of uh, peacekeeping, others counterterrorism, other humanitarianism. So everybody has a, everybody has their own pretext on why they're there, and there's so many countries. But just like the Americans, a lot of these other foreign powers and regional states in Somalia really don't differ and don't have anything good to offer to Somalia. Because they're all at the end of the day trying to secure their own interests.
0: The thing is that many of these countries see Somalia, too, as a wild card, especially where the location it is in the Horn of Africa. Uh, Any unity uh, would would not allow them to do some of the things that they do. Even the the, the fishing industry that is... um, unprotected by the by somalia and you have a bunch of uh foreign countries coming in doing huge net fishing and if we can quickly step into a a topic that is uh very popular amongst the world uh when we talk about somalia which is the somali pirate issue uh that happened by 11 years ago uh what is what is your knowledge in regards to the, the the real story of the somali pirates
1: uh in my opinion uh Well, piracy in Somali was a result, as many people are known, uh, is because of the illegal fishing and plundering of the Somali territorial waters post 1991 following the collapse of the government, but the piracy that's viewed on the mainstream media that people like yourself and I are well aware of kicked off in around 2003-2004 all the way, I would say, until about 2011, 2012. And most cases, what you had, these were actual ordinary fishermen from the coastal communities who had their livelihoods destroyed because of the illegal fishing or because of the toxic waste that was being dumped And You know, they got to a point where they had no choice, but they just like, forget it. And they just picked up arms and they started attacking these ships and holding up a ransom and they were getting cashed out millions and millions. That's what the root cause of the piracy was. I feel like it's because they brought the people to the brink. Once you bring a man to the brink he'll do anything. And this is what a lot of these fishermen were from the coastal communities, you know. So that's what I would say. The reason, uh, the cause and the uh the reason behind the whole piracy movement. But I don't consider it really pirates, I kind of feel like it's Robin Hood because I mean, if you look at it, a lot of times what happens when these pirates, I mean these individuals come up on uh money, uh two million, three million dollar ransom. A lot of the times there was reports that they'll probably invest in their communities and they'll you know give back to the community. It happened more than once, so I mean, that's the real reason behind piracy. But as of today, 2021, it doesn't exist because uh, Somalia is militarized both on land and sea. And there's a EU naval force right now patrolling Somali territorial waters that is supported by the EU. And there's thousands of EU naval ships, they say they're there to fight piracy, but they don't catch no pirates because it's militarized. No one is going to, you know, try to, you know, uh, hijack a ship if there's army ships there, you know. So as a now, that's the situation. The, pir- the piracy movement pretty much died out over the past decades since the militarization really kicked in. But I mean, that's the root cause behind piracy, plundering and uh, stealing Somali resources.
0: Yeah, and it's crazy how the movie uh, Captain Phillips really uh, changed the image of Somalians. Uh, and, and I remember my personal story. I remember watching that movie with uh, with my friends, and all of them were, were a group of white guys. And I remember watching that movie and just had to explain to them that this is, this is not right. And this is not the actual story. But by then, it was just too late. The story of um, uh, Abduwele uh, Abdul Khadir, am I saying his name right? The 16-year-old who yeah, was qualified as the, as, the, as the main character in the movie. And, and what's his story?
1: Uh, to my knowledge, it was him and about two of his colleagues. They hijacked the U.S. flagship off the coast. Right. And uh, I guess they held the crew hostage for 48 hours and they put them, I believe, onto a raft or something like that to try to take them back onto shore into Somalia so they could start demanding ransom and things like that. But I guess like uh, two of his colleagues were killed during the rescue operation by the U.S. Special Forces, and he was captured alive. And what happened next was, I think, was completely wrong because he was extradited to U.S. to face trial for piracy. You know what I mean? Even though the crime occurred off Somali territorial waters. So yeah, that, and, that's... and he was
0: he was 16 years old. And, and yeah. that's the most interesting part about it,
1: too. He, yeah, he was 16. And the thing is, they tried him as an adult. Usually they wouldn't. But. The thing is, I kind of this is where I really believe there's a lot of cultural ignorance in the American and Western legal system. In, where yeah, the guy is 16. He's claiming he's 16. You guys don't believe it. Right. But at the same time, you can't prove he's over 18. You know what I mean? What they did during the court hearing, because uh, he was arrested in 2009, but convicted in 2011. What happened during the court hearing was. They called his father to testify. His father in Somalia. They called him over the phone to testify and to confirm that the, his age is 16. And the father uh, said, my child is 16. And they asked him about his other children. And he couldn't confirm their age. So they decided, oh, this guy is not 16. He must be an adult. And they couldn't even confirm his actual age. So they just tried. I feel like they threw him under the bus and they just hit him with the book and gave him 33 years. And uh, the reason I say, but I, it's a lot of cultural ignorance because if you look at Somalia, a lot of people that are from the rural communities and nomads, especially like maybe like our parents' generation and so forth, a lot of them might not know the exact day they're born, you know what I mean, or the exact year they're born. It's just how it is with Somali society, particularly those that help in the rural communities. And then just to deny it and say, nope, he's over 18 without even knowing his actual age or without being able to prove his age, I feel like they just threw the guy under the bus. That's how I look at it.
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, I can even speak of my personal story with my grandmother. We didn't know how old she was, all right. And and some doctors said she was over the age of uh, of one hundred years old. Uh, it's approximately maybe about one hundred and five to one hundred and ten, and we couldn't believe it. But uh, so it's it's very that that story is very true, uh, and it's very unfortunate what happened to him. We can uh move on to a, a different issue, which is the the D N A P forces in Somalia, the the D N A P brigade. Uh, what is the DUNAB Brigade and what work do they do in Somalia? And what is the main objective of, the, of this force?
1: Yeah, DUNAB was formed in uh, 2013 during the Obama era. And the purpose behind it was to create an indigenous strike force able to target militants and carry out counterterrorism operations. Uh, their training is overseed by Bankrupt Global, which is our pretty much private contractor. They're mercenaries, but the politically correct term to use is private contractors with links to the State Department, they've been in Somalia since I believe it was the 2010-2011 era. And most of these uh, mercenaries there, uh, I would say they're not all Americans. A lot of them are Europeans, and you have a substantial amount of white South Africans involved. And they oversee the training of the Duna Brigade, and at the same time these people are not, uh, uh, what's it called? They're, they're not obliged to the rules of engagement. So therefore, uh, they won't necessarily abide by rules by the US military in regards to trying to at least uh, safeguard human rights and things like that. And I believe that's one of the main reasons why Bancroft and up in the past have been implicated in abuses. But as of today, Dunham is uh, about a 1,500 Man, forced. They usually carry out raids alongside U.S. and pr- other private contractors and have also been implicated in abductions and ex- summerly executions and a lot of abuses, honestly, under the guise of counterterrorism. So, and I think it's kind of unfortunate because if you look at Somali society today, a lot of Somalis will say, oh, these are special forces, or oh, they're commandos. But at the end of the day, these men have been implicated in human rights abuses, you know what I mean? Just because, you know, they're armed and trained by the U.S. and they're fighting terrorism. That's not the full story. There's a lot of innocent people who vanished or were killed at the hands of these individuals, you know? So that's just a brief background to benefit.
0: And that's the thing. There's no due process. I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of positive work that they do and also some, some uh, challenges that they have to face. However, there are wrongful killings or wrongful abductions and the things that you never get to see that uh, certain groups like this would ever um, face any trial. And that's very unfortunate. Uh, and similar thing happened in Iraq with, uh, with the
1: Blackwater.
0: And, uh, and that was also a very unfortunate story.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, there is no due process because, I mean, in general, Somalia's judicial system is broken and non-existent in many places. And when you look at it, and the problem is when it comes to counterterrorism operations in Somalia, Somalia is one of those places where if you're suspected of having militant ties, you'll either vanish or get killed, maybe even both. And this is what happens to a lot of these people that are picked up during the raids by the Dena Brigade, you know? So, yeah, it is really unfortunate. And, I mean, there's nothing really you can do about it. This is just what's happening back home at the moment.
0: And what is really going on in South Africa? Recently, there have been uh, multiple Somali, especially Somali young men and business owners killed uh, or businesses burning down. And I've just been seeing a lot of stuff online. explaining what the issues are going on over in South Africa.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, in South Africa, there's a big Somali community, uh, mainly from the business elite. And there's been a lot of killing. Somalis actually have been getting killed in South Africa for like a, a decade or so. Honestly, it's pretty rampant. But it's to matter over the past few years. I mean, so far this year, 19 Somalis have been murdered. Last year, a total of 33 Somalis were murdered. A lot of this violence is linked to, linked to the all-out xenophobia in the country. A lot of it is also linked to crime and things like that. But yeah, the Somali business they're often targeted. And most of these killings tend to take place in townships, which are not necessarily in the cities, but they're like located in like the slums. And I guess that's where a lot of the money's at. And these people are being targeted because Somalis, I mean, they're very, they're, they have, you know, they're known to be naturally entrepreneurship and they have been, they're known, well known in the business community. So a lot of Somalis are being targeted, but it's not just limited to Somalis. There's also uh, plenty of Nigerians and people from Bangladesh that are being targeted, but Somalis are getting hit hard right now. Xenophobia is the main cause behind the murder, even because when I've spoken to a lot of the business community and other Somali gymnasts, that's what they'll tell me. I mean, and I think the, the ones behind the xenophobia in South Africa, surprisingly, is the current ruling party, A and C. You know, they want to scapegoat uh, ordinary African migrants and refugees for the socio-economic problems that blacks are facing in South Africa today that was that's a result of white supremacy left behind by uh, left behind despite decades of uh, ago since apartheid ended. And the ANC party, surprisingly, they were, uh that was Nelson Mandela's party, you know what I mean? Before apartheid ended, they fought the uh, struggle against uh, colonialism and apartheid and all of that. But right now, they're the ruling party in South Africa, and it's unfortunate to see them scapegoating other Africans when they were supported worldwide as a pan-African movement not too long ago.
0: Yeah, that's uh, very unfortunate, and we look forward to uh, just seeing what happens next uh, and if people are brought to justice, so please keep us updated and I'm sure we can follow your work uh, on Twitter and on YouTube to see what's happening with uh, within South Africa. Of course. Is Africa divided or is it corrupted? Uh,
1: I, I would say neither. I believe Africa is compromised, you know. Uh, when you look at it from she, Somalia, the DRC, uh, Nigeria, I mean, Africa has so much potential, it, it's not just resources, this, this is just a vibrant society that can accomplish so much, but they're just compromised by outsiders, you know? And these outsiders come in different forms, you know what I mean? They come in under the guise of, uh, like I keep saying earlier, fighting terrorism, humanitarianism, development, and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's all linked to subduing Africa and exploiting Africa. So I would say just Africa is being compromised by its leadership, who are pretty much, you know, betraying their people and working for these global powers. And at the same time, these same global powers that are, you know, that are colluding against Africa for their own vested interests. So I would say Africa is compromised.
0: Yeah, and it's very unfortunate. Africa transitioned from, especially after World War II, from colonialism to neocolonialism. And and unfortunately, that is what it's still dealing with. uh, And hopefully, we can break that chain one day. The Somalia that could have been is what? Without constant intervention. Help me finish the sentence.
1: The Somalia that could have been, I think... uh, without constant intervention and in all these foreign invasions. And I think Somalia would have been back on its feet by now and would have been up and running, you know? The country sure would have had its problems, but if there wasn't so much foreign, uh, inter- foreign intervention to Somalia, it would have allowed for Somalis to come together reconcile among themselves, you know what I mean, Uh, uh, build a government, a grassroots government with popular support, you know, and actually, you know, secure a future for their nation and their people. But as a result of these consecutive foreign interventions and these suedo state building uh, scenarios that were hosted outside the country, I feel like Somalia just, man, it was just uh, sabotaged in a way, to be honest, all these interventions, because when you look at Somalia's collapse in 1991, I feel like the, the civil war and the collapse of Somalia, Somalia was made worse by consecutive foreign interventions. And in many cases, I believe, kind of set Somalia on the path of no return. I mean, a lot knows best, but when you look at the situation, the way it's going, it's just not looking good. So I do believe if Somalia were without intervention, they would have reconciled among themselves and had things together by now.
0: And just imagining we, uh, we have the longest coast in Africa and one of the longest ones in, in the world and just imagining the, how much you could have done with that. Uh, it's, but, but again, I'm a very optimistic person. Uh, inshallah, there's, there's a lot of young people. Uh, Africa happens to be the youngest uh, continent in the world. Uh, so the, the future is very bright, and I'm very optimistic about that. To quickly step into some of the issues of war crime, uh, especially in Africa and Somalia. For example, under Bush, there were 48 uh, drone strikes recorded. Under Obama, there was 52 in his first year. Uh, and over 500 throughout his, his term. Has war on terror failed in Africa?
1: Uh, yeah, I think the war on terror in regards to Africa is is in shambles and it's failed, because if you really want to fight terrorism and uh, what's it called counter insurgencies and things like that, you have to look at the root cause of the terrorism. What's causing them? And many of these cases, uh, the terrorism and violent insurgencies are caused by inter- foreign intervention, uh, social grievances. You know what I mean, and things of that nature. And and most of those problems can be dealt with on a, on a on a grassroots level by the locals. You know. But that's not happening. And the way that the war on terror is based on is they have the mentality of use muscle to get your way into combat. But that's not the case. Most conflicts can be settled with reconciliation. It's always not through the barrel of the gun, you know? And that's how I look at it in places like Somalia or Mali and Burkina Faso and other conflict zones in Africa right now.
0: Is Africa the next Afghanistan in the terms of of a long term of constantly trying something that doesn't work? Uh, And and failing and but still not giving up. The US have been involved in Afghanistan since 9-11. And so far, there hasn't been any progress and they continue to still uh, be in there. So do you think AFRICOM is the next Afghanistan?
1: I think a- Africa is the new uh, battleground for the U.S., in my opinion, in general, yeah, like you said. Uh, the reason besides that, because if you look at the, I mean, there, Africa has expanded, and military operations on the African continent have also expanded. I mean, a simple example could be Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso is small, ma- many people might view it as insignificant country, relatively peaceful over the years. But as soon as U.S. military operations increase in uh Burkina Faso in regards to training and operations and things like that, you had violent insurgencies rising up, there was increased terror attacks, militant attacks, so I view it to be something by design, so I do believe Africa is a new battleground for the war on terror because if you look at uh, Niger, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, Somalia, Libya, all of these battlefields. It's like there's more, but there are more battlefields against terrorism or alleged terrorism in Africa than there is the Middle East. So I do feel like the Americans are and just the international community in general is bunkering down and they're getting prepared for a long fight that is probably unlikely to end anytime soon.
0: Well said. Um, Africa is the new battleground, and especially since it is the youngest uh, continent in the world. Uh, and as I mentioned uh, previously, the future is optimistic. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of foreign countries and foreign entities that want to be a part of this and, and want to influence uh, these young people. So hopefully it'll be in a the, in the positive way, and hopefully we can get into an era of less wars and less violence and less killings and, and less terroristic attacks. Uh, Why is it important to at this current time that we live in, why is it important to have uh, freelance journalists such as yourself and just in general independent media?
1: Oh, I think it's because so the narrative isn't controlled, No, regardless of what topic you're reporting on or what part of the world you're reporting from. Independent and freelance journalists are needed uh, in order to tell the sides of the story that might not make the front headlines of the local newspaper or the media outlets on television. These stories are important because at the end of the day, uh, based on the reporting, they actually tell stories that are often never heard. In many cases, these stories end up saving lives when it comes to abuses and atrocities taking place uh, in the certain parts of the world so I do think there is an important need for freelance and independent media out there and I think we need more of it honestly because so much so many problems are taking place in the world but they're just not it's not getting the coverage that it deserves
0: we live in a current time where there is need a balance and we have so much access to media so having freelance media such as yourself and independent media is very crucial uh, and we look forward to to seeing some of the work that you do so uh, hopefully please keep us updated and posted on that what is the best way for people to contact you how can they check out your work and uh, is there anything that you're currently working on that we should look out for
1: mm, uh let's see i think the best way for contact me you can just dm me on twitter or i would say i can share my email with you as well it's on my twitter page yeah, yeah i'll say email or via the dm me on twitter and projects i'm working on right now and uh it's actually related to the somali killings in south africa what i'm doing is uh, uh it's not the ones that were because there was 19 somalis murdered this year last year there was a total of 33 so what i've done is i've collected the names and pictures of all 33 somalis who were murdered the previous year in 2020 and i'm putting everything together to tell their stories in a documentary where i want to release it in the next few weeks so that's a project i'm working on as of right now
0: and when that project's completed well where can people see that project
1: oh it's on my youtube channel just search of hugging media uh, and they should be able to see it when it's released
0: so, Hug Media on YouTube. Yes. Mohammed, I thank you so much for not only giving me the time, but for the work that you do. Uh, mm. I really wish you all the best and safety. Uh, we need more humans like you in this world. Uh, we need more people like you to that are continuously, to, are, who are shining light on these issues. Uh, if mm. there's any way we can continuously help you out with any project, please uh, let us know. And I really appreciate the time that you've given me today.
1: Thank you, Ahmed. I appreciate your time as well. And you have a great platform. I'm hoping to, um we're hoping to see it grow more and more. Inshallah. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. All right, thank you.